Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to today's show. This afternoon, part four of four, Ted Sorensen. Ted Sorensen, as you all know, was JFK's closest advisor. He was also JFK's speechwriter for 11 years before JFK was president, and he also shared rooms on the road with JFK. Just an outstanding, outstanding, outstanding gentleman, vision, class, intelligence, able to work under intense pressure, as we have noted in the past several shows, the Cuban Missile Crisis, unbelievable. It has been a sheer delight for me to be able to speak with one of my childhood heroes, Ted Sorensen. And we continue today with part four of four, Ted Sorensen. I represented Anwar Sadat uh, at the time that he decided to go to Jerusalem. I represented, or at least I advised, Nelson Mandela when he came out of prison and uh, ran for president of South Africa. And I had some involvements with a number of other countries, including helping draft a constitution for Tajikistan, one of the Central Asian republics that uh, emerged uh, when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. And, well, I could go on and on. I've, uh, I've had a lot of interesting assignments. This afternoon, Ted Sorensen, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us today, we are speaking with Ted Sorensen. Ted Sorensen, of course, was probably JFK's closest advisor during his administration and before that as well. Civil rights. I know there was an uphill battle in those days. And folks today don't remember this. I was at one of the universities here and one of the students asked her, did you ever have a white boyfriend? You know, they just don't understand the division that was in place in those days and what Kennedy was up against and your whole administration was up against in those days. Was it very... Not dif- just those days, because uh, when Kennedy and Johnson put through a comprehensive civil rights program, they both agreed that that was the end of the Democratic Party in the South and maybe the end of the Democratic Party winning presidential elections. Since then, the only two Democrats Democrats who have won presidential elections up to before Obama were two Southern governors, Carter and Clinton, and every other presidential election was won by the Republicans with strong support from the Southern and border states, and that anti-democratic party attitude continues 
to a considerable extent today, despite the miracle, and it was a miracle, of Obama's victory. Do you think a lot of those elements are still in place today? Yes. And you draw parallels between the anti-Catholic movement that was against Kennedy and the anti-African-American movement that's against Obama. Yes, if anything, uh, it was stronger against Kennedy because people thought that the Catholics exercised mind control and that a Catholic president would therefore be submissive to the Pope, that he would permit clergymen to tell their parishioners how to vote. They don't mind if Protestant ministers tell their uh, congregations how to vote, but... uh, In those days, the fear of a Catholic in the White House, which today seems incomprehensible, nobody thinks about it, Mm -hmm. was very, very strong. And that is one of the reasons why I thought Obama could win in 08 if a Catholic could win in 1960. And so they both faced formidable demographic obstacles, but both were young, both were articulate and eloquent, both had a good uh, idea of how the United States looked from abroad, because both of them had spent time abroad, Obama when he was growing up, Kennedy when he was an ambassador's son. So I think Obama is more like John F. Kennedy than uh, any president since. I'm going to ask you a question now, just off the top of my head. Did JFK ever piss you off, sir? Did you ever disagree with him? Never. Oh. uh, Interesting. He was a lot slower to lead on civil rights, which had been a subject very important to me when I was even younger. I was going to say when I was young, but I was pretty young when I was in the White House. Yeah, you sure But even younger, I had started out talking about and rooting for um, civil rights, and he he, he came from a totally different background and was a little slower. But my affection and admiration for him were such that I uh, respected him, always admired him and uh, can never say that whatever minor disagreements uh, we might have had on other subjects from time to time that I anything ever became a major block between us. In fact, just to take time for one other story, uh, there was almost a lawsuit over the uh, claim that I had been the author of his book Profiles and Courage. He was very upset and angry about that and when the lawyers for the other side when he and his father were threatening the lawsuit, said, well, maybe Sorensen himself talked about writing Profiles and Courage. JFK said, uh, no, he never would have said that. And the author said, maybe he said it when he was drunk. No, he doesn't drink. Maybe he said it when he was angry at you. And JFK said, he's never been angry at me. And that was the truth. Beautiful. Folks, the book counselor... Our guest today, Ted Sorensen, right there in the Oval Office, right beside JFK and beforehand as well. Go and get this book. It is real history. It is the story of a relationship between two of the smartest men in the world. And thank God they were in place in those times or we would not be speaking right now. I urge you all to get this book, www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on the book cover, take you right to Chapters Indigo, order it online or go down to Chapters Indigo. It's readily available on the shelves. Can I touch on his death, sir? Briefly, but it's the worst day of my life, so I don't like to talk about it too much. Understood, sir. You wrote something quite ominous. In your book, you said that 
I'll paraphrase. Basically, upon reflection, you find it hard to believe now that perhaps some of Kennedy's enemies were not behind the assassination. Have I got that correct? Well, something like that, because I don't know. Uh, nobody really knows, and I try to avoid reading most of these so-called conspiracy uh, books. The fact is that Kennedy had enemies in the right wing, particularly because of civil rights and because his American University speech mm -hmm. indicated that he was taking a more accommodating position toward the Soviet Union. He also had uh, enemies among organized crime, as did his brother Bobby. He also supposedly had enemies among communists in both the Soviet Union and Cuba, though I don't think either one of them would have thought that they would gain by Kennedy's removal. All I meant to say in the book was, considering the number of enemies that he had in the military and intelligence circles in the United States, Lord knows they had reasons to get rid of him. They had opportunities to have access to arms, to reach out to the kinds of weird and confused individuals who can be recruited for that kind of work. I uh, don't make any accusations because I don't believe in making accusations without proof. Fair enough, sir. Let's move on from that. Bobby and Ted, his brothers, can you just say a few words about each one? I know you worked right after when Bobby was running for president. I know you worked in tandem with him as an advisor. Did he approach you for that role or did you approach him or was it just understood? As I describe in some detail in the book, Bobby and I started out as somewhat suspicious uh, rivals for JFK's time and attention uh, during his days as a senator and later as a candidate. But once Bobby became the 1960 campaign chairman, I think he recognized that I had some special values to his brother. He recognized that when he was attorney general and I was in the White House with his brother. And after his brother's death, both Bobby and I recognized that for each of us it had been a shattering blow and treated each other accordingly. I wrote my first book, the book Kennedy, mm -hmm. that you mentioned, on Cape Cod and uh, often saw Bobby, who would return there for weekends. And then when he ran for the Senate in New York, he asked me to go to New York and campaign for him, which, which I did. When he became a senator, he occasionally uh, called on me for advice. I acted as lawyer for one of his books. And then when he ran for president, although I had advised against it, saying that four years later it would be a much better time for him, uh, he asked me to join his brother Ted and his brother-in-law, Steve Smith in a triumvirate that pretty much was in charge of his presidential campaign. As far as his brother Ted goes, well, naturally, I've known him since my earliest days with John F. Kennedy going back to 1953. That means I knew him for 56 years until the day he died. And during those 56 years, I was occasionally an advisor and always a friend. Always a friend. Did Bobby's policies differ a lot from JFK's or was he carrying the torch forward? 
Initially, they differed quite a bit. Bobby was closer to their father, who was conservative and a little more militant, and Bobby worked for Joseph R. McCarthy when Mm. he first went to Washington. But Bobby, as attorney general, was completely supportive of JFK's policies, particularly on civil rights, which was in Bobby's jurisdiction. And in the years after, Bobby continued as a United States senator to forward JFK's policies on civil rights and on peace instead of constant resort to war and military force. And that's why Bobby would have found a way out of Vietnam, which JFK was on the verge of doing when he was killed. That's right. Folks, the book, of course, counselor, our guest today, Ted Sorensen, um, riveting. Absolutely riveting. I'm so grateful for you to come on the show today, Ted. I'm going to start to wrap up now because I have monopolized your time completely this morning. And I do appreciate that, as I'm sure the listeners who are primarily students do as well. Well, any who stayed with us that long deserve a medal. (laughs) I'm sure they're just riveted to their chairs as I am, sir. What's next for you, sir? Next? Oh, I have some a uh, couple books in mind, and Wonderful. I will be uh, giving some speeches. And uh, last year, I spent almost an entire week traveling Ontario, uh, thanks to the uh, encouragement of their uh, splendid premier. And I uh, met a lot of nice people in uh, Ontario uh, and addressed the Liberal Party. Uh, they don't call it a convention; I think they call it the annual general meeting. I think so, too. And so I hope uh, my travels, uh, while I'm still around, uh, I'll be 82 in a few weeks, I hope those travels include the trip back to Canada. I hope so, too, sir. And I'm sure you're going to be around for many years to come. I've seen your picture. And to be honest with you, there's not that much difference. from your pictures with JFK to today. So I don't know what, again, I don't know what you ate way back then when that uh, woman brought you the <laughs> that meal, but I would like something like that myself. I want to thank you so much well, for coming on the show. Well, the secret is twofold. Number one, yes, sir. I exercise a lot. Yes, sir. I swam 30 lengths this morning in the pool before taking this call. And number two, I've never smoked a cigarette in my entire life, and that's kept me alive. That's perfect, sir. I'm so glad you came on today, and I just, again, want to thank you. We never even got to your post-JFK days, your post-Bobby days. I had a very, very interesting international law practice. I know you did. Um, Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Have you got time? I don't want to monopolize you. Have you got time? Absolutely. I've got all day for you, Well, let me just say that... Yes, go uh, ahead. Well, uh, when I first arrived in the law firm with which I'm still associated as counsel, I'm retired as a partner. When I first arrived, they weren't quite sure what to do with me. I'd never practiced law before, but I knew something about government. And for my first year, I handled uh, some problems that people, clients had with the federal government in Washington. But then it began to spill over the problems people had with foreign governments, because when you know how to talk to government, you know how to talk to most governments. And pretty soon, almost all that I was doing involved foreign governments 
The highlights were I represented Anwar Sadat uh, right. at the time that he decided to go to Jerusalem. I represented, or at least I advised, Nelson Mandela when he came out of prison and uh, ran for president of South Africa. And I had some involvements with a number of other countries, including helping draft a constitution for Tajikistan, one of the Central Asian republics that uh, emerged uh, when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. And, well, I could go on and on. I've... Uh, I've had a lot of interesting assignments. There is a list, actually, sir, of all the people that you've met. You've put just a little comment beside each one. And Nelson Mandela, you had mentioned it. He's at the top. What was it yes, about his of person? All the yes, sir? Of all the foreign leaders I've met, and I've met dozens of them, he was the most impressive. Was it his persona? Was there a charisma about him? There was, but in addition to that, he had a calm, statesmanlike, unselfish view that reminded me in many ways of JFK. When Nelson Mandela came to my law office for a meeting of a group I set up to contribute to funding for voter education in South Africa, he uh, held an impromptu press conference there after our board meeting was over, and the members of the press peppered him with questions questions about the fact that he and the uh, South African white president at that time, who was one of those who had him in prison, mm -hmm, the clerk, the clerk mm -hmm. that he and Mandela and the clerk were both getting, sharing the Liberty Bell prize they give in uh, Philadelphia. And so uh, just about the first question he got was a softball. Uh, how do you feel about the fact that the clerk, part of the regime that kept you in prison for 27 years, is sharing in your prize? And I thought that was Mandela's opportunity to really blast a clerk. But no, he said, well, that's a decision for the people of Philadelphia. For the time being, Mr. DeClerc and I need each other. After that period ends, we'll go our separate ways. That was a brilliant answer. Absolutely. And one with vision to the future and uniting a country. Yep. yep. Truly a statesman, without question. Do you feel, when you saw JFK, did you see yourself in him? And perhaps vice versa, did JFK see something of himself in you? No, not remotely possible, because he had grown up very rich boy in a very rich New England family that was strongly Roman Catholic, and he had been not only a Harvard graduate, but a war hero. I had grown up in a, at best, middle-class family in Nebraska. I went to the University of Nebraska and mm -hmm. the public schools, and I was too young at 13, no, 11 years his junior. I was too young to serve in the war. In fact, after the war was over, I registered as a conscientious objector that I was willing to be in the army, but not to kill people. And so uh, he was on, on the surface. He and I were completely different. And yet we both had been brought up by our parents to believe in public service, to try to make this a better country and a better world. And we both had minds that focused on the sensible and the reasonable. And we both had good senses of humor and enjoyed exchanging jokes. Idealism. That's you... where we had a bond in common, idealism. Precisely. Let's go back to your post-JFK. There's a nice little story in there about an airplane ride that you had. 
<laughs> you're talking about the one with my wife in South America, or are you where it dropped? About uh, the one with with Mandela from. Uh, I was talking the, about the um, the one with your wife uh, because it dropped so far. Oh boy! Oh boy! I'll never forget that. Yeah. We were. I was. Uh, I was flying in a Swiss airplane. I had been doing some law business in Brazil. I was on my way to, I believe it was Chile, and we were flying over the Andes, and I had my uh, work spread out on my lap and all of a sudden the plane hit what they call a clear air pocket and dropped straight down. All the work on my lap arose to the ceiling and then fell to the floor and there was complete silence on that plane except for one lady praying in Spanish and the only noise was the sides of the plane. I don't know whether they were buckling or what they were doing, but they were certainly making some uh, horrendous sound that you won't normally hear. And finally, the uh, pilot regained control. We had already dropped something like 2,000 feet, and but we didn't hit the mountains, and we were safe, and I've often asked about that particular route, and last time I asked, they told me it had been abandoned. It was so dangerous. Scary moment. Did you think that was it for you, sir? I wondered whether it was or not. My wife and I looked at each other, but uh, also in the book, I tell about the time, JFK and I, in 1956, when he mm -hmm. first became a national figure and we were traveling to every state, we had been in Idaho. That's right, yeah. And we were flying from Idaho to Nevada in a little one-engine plane, and the local county chairman was the pilot. When the county chairman says he'll take you, you don't say no when you're trying to get a favor in Idaho. And as he flew into or started his descent into Reno, Nevada, the plane turned upside down. And JFK, I was sitting in the front with the pilot. I turned around, looked at JFK. He looked at me. It was a kind of a, my God, look. The pilot straightened out, righted the plane, righted itself. He made a, went past the airport, made a turn, came back. And he apologized, saying he'd been getting a little tired. And he, I don't know anything about flying airplanes, much less aerodynamics, but he said that, you're supposed to come in against the wind, and he came in with the wind, and that's what caused that uh, momentary uh, shock. Wait, that's a bit of a metaphor for what was to come. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it might have. Well, I think uh, we'd already been through quite a bit together, and yeah. we knew more was to come, and it sure did. I would like you to do me a favor and tell a wonderful story. And then we'll we'll end it, sir. I, I want to let you have the rest of your afternoon to yourself. Tom Lipscomb was here, and he was telling us the story. Uh, do you know Tom Lipscomb? I'm not sure if you know him or not. Why is that name familiar, Tom? He's a Pulitzer Prize nominee. He wrote uh, something on... Well, he had went down, actually, and got Che Guevara's personal diaries just after Che Guevara had died. He's a publisher. Uh, he's done all kinds oh, of great things. Oh, a publisher. Things. Yes, that's where I know him. Yeah. I probably have met him. He's a wonderful guy. Just a terrific guy. He was telling us the story when Jay... JFK was in front of the the grid, the the um, the gridiron. And could you tell that? <laughs> I, know, I, I don't know why he's telling it. I have something to do with that speech. I can tell you all about that. Could you, sir? That's wonderful. That story. I love it. Well, the first yes, uh, JFK. The Gridiron speech is uh, is the, the Gridiron dinner is the annual dinner given by the Gridiron 
Club, Journalist Club, the Washington Correspondents Club. They invite all the big wigs in government and business to this black tie or white tie dinner, and they have one speaker from each party. Kennedy in 1958 was picked as the Democratic speaker. Great honor, great singling him out. The context is that he was very upset with himself for accepting to be the Democratic speaker in 1958 at the Gridiron speech. He said to me, if I'm funny, so what? That doesn't help me become president. But if I fall on my face, it's all over town that I'm a failure. He didn't fall on his face. But every day for the next two or three weeks, he said, why did I ever accept that? If you're successful, who cares if you're funny? That doesn't help you become president. But if you're a flop and comedy is so easy to fail, then it's all over town that you're a flop. Why did I ever accept that? We finally got a group together and reviewed uh, dozens and dozens of jokes that I had pulled together. His opening line was a great success, poking fun at himself. They had just finished a skit to the tune of My Heart Belongs to Daddy, in which they were singing about the JFK campaign, Just Send the Bill to Daddy. So JFK immediately begins, Gentlemen of the Gridiron, there were no ladies in those days, Gentlemen of the Gridiron, I've just received the following telegram from my generous daddy. Dear Jack, don't buy one vote more than is necessary. I'm damned if I'm going to pay for a landslide. <laughs> I love that story. Thank you so much for that, Ted. Okay. One last, got it. One last question, my friend. Ted, you're virtually right. speaking to every Canadian university student and international student right across the country, and internationally as well, because a lot of folks download this show off the Internet. What would, you say, what would you say to them? I would say to them that, uh, as I say to my book, Counselor, in my book, Counselor, which is addressed primarily to university students anywhere in the world, that don't give up hope in democracy and freedom. Don't give up hope in the fact that someone can overcome the kinds of hurdles that John F. Kennedy overcame in terms of his illness as a child and the handicap of his religion as a candidate. And even when the sky looked darkest when Soviets had nuclear missiles in Cuba, but because he worked hard, he focused that analytical brain of his on whatever problem he confronted. He didn't put any personal or political or other prejudice in front of what was best for a more peaceful, just world, and he prevailed, and so can any listener prevail if they will put their mind to it. That's perfect. I want to thank you so much for joining us for this series of four specials. I enjoyed it. Thank you. I sincerely want to thank Ted Sorensen for taking the time out. Two hours, folks, on the phone he spent with me for this interview, and just to let you know, he has agreed to another half-hour interview in the future. 
So stay tuned for that one, because there were some subjects that we just didn't have time to get to, believe it or not, in two hours. This is an incredible gentleman, folks. This is real living history. It doesn't get any more real than that. Coming up on Brent Holland, Jane Goodall. Talk about another living legend. And guess what Jane Goodall believes in? Well, you know what's fascinating? I mean, I've been interested in this. And just about everywhere, there is a creature, whether it's a Yeti, a Yari, a Bigfoot, an abominable snowman, a wild uh, there's creatures in South America. Everywhere there are stories. They all seem to describe much the same kind of creature. Very often there are two, one big black one and one smaller grayish one. The sounds that they're said to make are about the same. And people have come up with information, not because they think you want to know, but just because they just happen to be talking about them. So there's clearly something, like whether it's a creature that's recently become extinct and needs a memory, and yet you find lots of indigenous people who come face to face with what they believe is a is a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. I want to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. I'm Brent Holland. See you next time. Yeah.